Yama. Welcome to Blackademia, a podcast of yarns with First Nations academics of these lands now commonly referred to as Australia. I'm your host, Amy Tunig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present, and to the lands on which this podcast is recorded and streamed. Listeners are advised that this podcast, its associated website and social media presence may contain the voices and or images of First Nations people who have since passed. Discretion is advised. This is episode one of season one, and joining me today is our very first guest, Professor Marcia Langton. Professor Langton is the granddaughter of an Amman man, Fred Waddy, and her Bidjeru grandmother, Ruby Waddy. She was born in Brisbane, Queensland, and attended several rural and urban schools in southern Queensland before entering the University of Queensland in 1969. In 1984, she was awarded a Bachelor of Arts with First Class Honours at the Australian National University and in 2005, a PhD at Macquarie University. She holds the Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne and was appointed Distinguished Redmond Barry Chair. She is an anthropologist and geographer and is widely published on topics in Australian Indigenous studies, including Aboriginal land tenure, Aboriginal art and Indigenous agreement making. Professor Langton was appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 1993 for services to anthropology and advocacy of Aboriginal rights. She is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. In 2017, Professor Langton was appointed as the first Associate Provost at the University of Melbourne. Yama Professor Langton, thank you so much for agreeing to be my inaugural guest for Blackademia. Thank you, Amy. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. <laughs> um, before we get into talking about your academic role, could you introduce yourself in terms of who your mob is and maybe tell me a little bit about your family or your community life? I was born in Queensland a very long time ago, Amy. Um, my uh, grandfather uh, was an Iman man, Fred Waddy. He had a twin brother, Uncle Ted Waddy, and they were taken into the Bondala Reserve as children, as I understand it, as orphans, in fact. And uh, then in the 1920s, everybody at the old Bondala Reserve or Tarun Reserve was forced marched up to Urubinda. Um, after that, when my grandfather uh, went out to work on stations, he met my grandmother and they married at Mitchell. My grandmother was Ruby Johnson. Um, she became Ruby Waddy after marrying Granddad. And uh, she worked on the stations as a station cook. Um, I was born in Brisbane, as I said, and uh, I went to schools in rural and urban Brisbane, suburban Brisbane actually. Um, quite a few, quite a number of schools before I entered the University of Queensland in 1969. I got my degrees much later from the ANU, where I was awarded a Bachelor of Arts, first class honours. 1984, and a PhD at Macquarie University in 2005. That's fantastic. So your title is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Distinguished Professor Marcia Langton OM, and you're also the first Associate Provost at the University of Melbourne. Is that right? Not quite. Not quite. Uh, you have to refer to me as Distinguished Professor, although I was made uh, 
uh, distinguished Redmond Barry professor a couple of years ago. Um, my normal title is professor. I'm the professor of Australian Indigenous Studies, and I have been for 20 years. Um, and uh, my pronominals are AM, sorry, postnominals AM, um, Order of Australia, member of the Order of Australia. That's fantastic. And so for someone who is really unfamiliar with the academy titles, what does it mean that you're a professor? Um, well, professorships are jobs. Not all professorships are paid, but most are paid jobs. Uh, to qualify to be a professor, you have to have, these days, a PhD and a couple of books um, and be uh, an eminent person in your field um, uh, be capable of uh, supervising PhD students and uh, providing leadership in your academic discipline or field. It wasn't always this way. My professor, when I was at the ANU, had a master's, I think from Cambridge, um, but he was a very well-known anthropologist. And when I started university, it wasn't always typical that professors had PhDs. It has become almost necessary now in the academy because there are so many um, academics now and there's a lot of competition for jobs. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. That makes it sound really, like, understandable. Whereas I know when I was first an undergraduate, I, I at first thought everyone was a professor and then I started to notice all the different titles and I used to just avoid mentioning titles in any emails to my teachers because I was so confused by it all. So I'm loving being able to have these conversations and to share that knowledge out there. Um, so your advocacy, activism and authorship, both inside and outside of the academy, has been downright phenomenal and it spans decades. Um, and I, I have a few of these photos in a little collection in my office um, for inspiration and, and some of them include once of you protesting in 1982 in Brisbane, uh, and then I know that we're at the same march, you know, this year on January 26th. And the reason I have that photo up is because you're still going, you know, you, you keep turning up and, and that sustenance, that sustained energy and effort, I just find it so inspiring. Um, and I noticed that in the book, The Changemakers, you're quoted as saying, I adhere to an approach that I learnt when I was in my 20s, which was summed up in the saying, the world is run by those who show up. And I was hoping I could use our chat today to ask you, how do you keep showing up? This stuff is so exhausting and tiring and emotional, and yet you keep showing up at the marches and in the academy and in the research and in the publications. What sustains you? Uh, Amy, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a bit too old to go to many demonstrations. I go to the important ones uh, when I uh, can. It's not always possible uh, because, you know, it's, it's hard work, yeah. uh, especially when you've got bad knees, yeah. um, <laughs> as I do. Uh, but I did uh, do the whole walk uh, on January 26th in Melbourne um, and it, it wasn't so difficult. Um, I, um, I think fitness really helps. 
not that I'm very fit, but, you know, a certain level of fitness is necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I feel strongly about some issues and uh, I, I can't just, you know, sit behind a computer screen on social media or writing articles and and not show some commitment to other other people who um, would expect me to, to see me at these events. I, I think it's you know it's part of the package. If you if you express a view and uh, there's a movement towards a, a different outcome, and the movement involves marches, meetings, um, then. You know, there's a requirement to show up. So I show up as best as I can, given that I have a very heavy workload um, and uh, and I noticed that the, at some of the um, protests, people much older than me are doing very, very well um, and they're, they're fitter than me and, and they're showing up. So it's part of... I think it's part of being... Um, Aboriginal in contemporary Australia, it's where we see our colleagues actually as mm. at meetings, protests, conferences. Yeah. And uh, it's part of uh, participating in the community, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I find it, I think it inspires me particularly because that's something that I want to do. I don't want to lose energy. I don't want to lose hope. And so when I think about the conditions that yourself and and other First Nations people, particularly academics, and I think about how much harder it was for you at my age entering the academy, I just feel so inspired that, you you know, that energy, that light, that fire keeps going. And um, and so I thank you for that because that really encourages me and I know it encourages a lot of others. Um, So... Obviously, I'm using the term blackademia and blackademics uh, as part of the podcast collective. And um, I was wondering, you know, you've been, I mean, how long have you been at the University of Melbourne specifically now? About 20 years. That's incredible. Um, and your involvement in academia is, is, goes back far further than 20 years. What's your favourite part about being a blackademic? My favourite part is uh, turning up at uh, um, graduation ceremonies and graduation celebrations where I see our young people receiving their awards. I went to one last week here at the University of Melbourne. We have a biannual celebration for the graduates of two years of um, awards ceremonies and their family uh, and friends are invited um, and it's just a celebration with food and refreshments, a couple of speeches, some music, and, you know, most of all, congratulations to them and, you know, reminding them, we in our speeches remind them of how special they are and they really are special. I think we have about 16,000 Indigenous graduates now. Wow. So out of a population of about 800,000, that, that those 16,000 people are going to be the change makers um, in their chosen fields. Um, You know, some are opera singers, some are artists, some are scientists. Um, And it's 
it's just so thrilling to see um, the younger generations coming through with their qualifications and their enthusiasm. Um, and at the, the celebration last week here at the University of Melbourne, our Pro Vice-Chancellor, Sean Newen, who's Gundich Mara on his mother's side, mm-hmm. um, asked everyone present, well, who's first in family? So about half the graduates were first in family and the other half was second in family. Wow. So that's a big breakthrough. That's a big change. What a shift. Yeah, it really is. You know, it makes such a difference. Um, We're even seeing this. My younger sister is studying law now at university and the things that she calls me to help her with, um, I don't know the first thing about the legal system or what she's studying, but I understand how to navigate the university website and I know how to do a literature review and these kinds of things. And that's something that I did not have. And even just seeing how how much um, better, basically, her work is because she's not wasting so much time trying to figure out these really basic questions that took me a lot of time to research and find and not necessarily have someone to ask because I'd never seen someone go to uni before. And I'm finding that really amazing. So hearing that half a second, that's that's incredible. Knowing that they've got that kind of support, I feel like the chances of their work... Um, you know, them, them achieving more during the degree is perhaps a lot higher. Well, that's what we do here. We cre- try to create a culture of excellence. Mm. Um, and, uh, look, excellence can be defined in various ways. But, it's, you know, it simply means doing your absolute best to be as good as you can be in your field. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think it's very important to hold to those standards we don't want students to come here thinking that you can come to university and have a bit of a holiday. Yeah. It used to be that way with some Aboriginal students. They treated it as a lifestyle. You know, it's very much not like that at the University of Melbourne and hasn't been for a long time for mm. any student. Mm. Um, it's very hard work to get a degree. Um, but, you know, no harder than working in the workforce. Yeah doing any job it's you know you turn up at work every day and you do your work um be on time um and the but the benefits of having a degree are well they they accelerate young people's careers more than anything else yeah so we know that worldwide uh women having higher education changes the statistical profile of their children and grandchildren or their families. So their children and grandchildren um, pretty much automatically have a better life, more, you know, better health, um, better employment outcomes if the mother is educated. Yeah. And uh, it plays out in the statistics here. The um, Indigenous women... Uh, outnumber men in in graduations, in award completions, and uh, also in employment. So while I'm a feminist, I also note that the uh, Indigenous men need to be enrolled in universities at higher numbers and uh, achieve 
uh, com- more completions than at present, mm. and their employment prospects will also increase. But the amazing thing is that an Indigenous person is more likely to not only close the gap with a higher education degree, but more than close the gap. So Indigenous women graduates, on average, earn more than non-Indigenous women graduates. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I love the story that that data tells. And that was part of why, with my PhD, what I'm looking at is, well, why do Indigenous women who have gone and done those qualifications then choose to be academics? Because it is a choice. We're, we're very employable and um, do have these good outcomes statistically once we've attained a university degree or, or higher into postgraduate. And I think that that story about choice and about empowerment is one that we do need to see um, more of our First Nations men join us in. So yeah, I fully agree with you on that. And I, I find that that narrative around the data just so beautiful like it's fantastic it's about time that we we found some some empowerment within those stories and data well it has been the case for a while actually uh that indigenous women outnumber indigenous men in uh award completions and um with a with a higher education degree um earn more money than non-indigenous um, their non-Indigenous counterparts. That has been the case for some time. Mm. have a bit of work to do to um, ensure that more Indigenous men are in, enrolling at university and completing their degrees. We're seeing it gradually, but uh, I, I urge everybody in universities to do more. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so, and I mean, that that is part of the, the goal of this podcast is to make the space a little bit less intimidating, a little bit more understandable and familiar. Because as someone who was first in my family to finish high school, it was just so confusing when I first entered. I, I was good at reading and writing, but this was such a such a foreign space for me. So part of the goal with this podcast is, um, you know, I hope people listening start to realise like, oh, these spaces are a bit more accessible than I thought and they're just filled with people, a lot of whom will be like them. Um, so in the lead up to creating this podcast, I asked Twitter what they would like most to hear from Blackademics. And uh, the following two questions are ones that I would love to hear your answer on. So at Alib88 asks, how do you see academic endeavour being of tangible benefit to our communities? And I'm assuming Alib88 is First Nations and that collective our is for us as First Nations people. So uh, I was a junior lecturer at Macquarie University in anthropology back in 1992 when the news about the High Court decision in uh, the Mabo Number 2 case came through on the telephone, um, I did not expect that the High Court would rule in favour of the plaintiffs, Cliqui Mabo Mm. and colleagues. Uh, So it was an astonishing bit of news. And so I was asked to come up to North Queensland um, where, you know, I had good networks and a lot of colleagues uh, and few relations <laughs> um, and um, help out with uh, now translating that High Court decision into something meaningful. Mm. So I actually worked in the 
in the community, not in, not so much in academia, in the community on native title issues for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And I did publish a bit. A lot of it's published in obscure places. Uh, I became a member of the uh, native title negotiating team in 92 and 93 in Canberra, uh, along with Noel Pearson, PDU, David Ross, uh, uh, Daryl Pierce, um, quite a few other people, and we uh, put in some solid work to, to stop the states, the territories, the National Farmers Federation, uh, the Australian Mining Industry Council, as it was then, from um, lobbying the government very, very hard to reduce the High Court findings recognising native title to something equivalent to the Land Usage Act in Western Australia, which was thrown out by the by the High Court on the grounds of being racist. Mm. So all the states and territories and the industry bodies were pushing for what had all already been thrown out. Well, I think maybe it was thrown out afterwards. Anyway, basically something that was a no recognition of native title at all uh, and you know, goodness knows what they meant by usage rights, probably something less than the existing egress rights in pastoral leases. Mm. So to participate in uh, rescuing High Court findings, ensuring that uh, they're reflected to the greatest extent possible in legislation requires some education. Mm. Long hours... uh, in the, in the Parliament and in the Senate, lobbying um, members of the House of Representatives and senators from all parties, as well as uh, briefing um, people in 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 various roles who might support us. There wasn't much support for us, I can tell you that. Yeah. Uh, most people were completely confused, and the national debate was hysterical and vicious. In 1992, um, it was unbelievable to to most Australians that our native title could be recognised, and uh, many said so. That, and you know, you could see that they were just waiting for the government to get rid of this nonsense and turn the world back to the way it was supposed to be. Um, and it, the the television ads. Uh, funded by the Australian Mining Industry Council, uh, probably wouldn't be aired today because they were so racist. Wow. Um, And some very racist things were said in public by politicians. Mm. Some terrible things were said about the High Court judges. The late um, Tim Fisher um, of the National Party called the High Court judges pissants, what they're finding. I've been told that he later apologised, but I don't think the apology was actually published. Mm. Um, And that was remarkable coming from a person like him because he was one of the more civil National Party members. He he hadn't actually publicly advocated for Aboriginal people to be exterminated, as many of them had. Um, They were different times, Amy. Uh, And so that was a... I wouldn't say that we won and I wouldn't say that it was a Pyrrhic victory either, but we certainly did um, 
salvage a, a scheme for the recognition of native title in some circumstances. Obviously, a lot of people have, uh, have lost out, um, and but that was already um, a part of the High Court findings. And although we did do our best, I would say that we did not achieve the spirit of the High Court decision in all respects. We did, however, um, lobby for the and, and achieved the establishment of the Indigenous Land Commission, now the Indigenous Land and Sea Commission, uh, to, and a, uh, funds for that commission to provide for those people whose native title would never be recognised because the native title doctrine um, of the both the High Court and more particularly of the statute itself, the Native Title Act, is an extinguishment doctrine. So, uh, you know, native title that survived colonisation and land grants by the Crown is in the gaps, you see. Mm. So there wasn't much left, but then later decisions were made, such as in the Wick case, um, and we learned that pasture leases, in some circumstances, were uh, uh, effectively unalienated crown lands where native title had largely not been extinguished. And that was the case in Western Cape York in uh, the Wick case. And then there were other cases and we lost quite a few cases, but those that we did win were very helpful. Another very important part of the Native Title Act, which came later when John Howard, mm. former Prime Minister John Howard, threatened to, uh, threatened, uh, as in his words, bucket loads of extinguishment. So he uh, came up with his 10-point plan. And uh, his 10-point plan uh, was basically to uh, allow for blanket extinguishment of native title, but he was being very tricky. So if you look at the schedules uh, that eventually became part of the Native Title Act after his 10-point uh, plan amendments went through Parliament, uh, he extinguished all native title in war graves, Commonwealth war graves, um, bowling clubs. And, of course, that was, you know, uh, throwing a bit of, you know, bloody meat to the to his uh, less literate, um, less informed part of the electorate because they were never claimable. Native title was already extinguished in all of those areas, in most of the areas, in his schedules. Wow. So he... You know, he, this was when he was, you know, turning up in the bush with, in his Akubra hat. <laughs> As they do. <laughs> brand, brand new Akubra hat. Yeah. Um, and his, uh, <clears throat> you know, rural vest covering his Kevlar. Um, so uh, white people in the bush were baying for our blood. And so he played a trick on them, really. They think to this day that he's a big hero and they think that he gave them the Commonwealth War Graves. We were never able to claim the Commonwealth War Graves or bowling clubs. Anyway, 
So, uh, you know, you have to let some things go through to the keeper. Some balls go to the, through to the keeper and then you save your energy for the main fight. And so what we did in that instance was put up uh, the um, Indigenous Land Use Agreement Amendment to enable um, negotiation of agreements that did not involve the extinguishment of native title. So previously, agreements were interpreted under the Native Title Act were interpreted by the states and territories as requiring the extinguishment of all native title. Under the Indigenous Land Use Agreements, that was not necessary. So we got that provision through. Um, and so now there are hundreds of Indigenous Land Use Agreements. And I think that's been one of the very important features of the Native Title Act. It's allowed Indigenous people a seat at the table. So that's what education did for me. It enabled me to play in that space and get some very important outcomes. I've, I've had good outcomes in other areas. One of them is not um, Aboriginal deaths in custody. I worked for two and a half years on the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. There have been more than 300 deaths in custody since the uh, national reports were tabled in Parliament in 1991. And I am distraught every time I hear of another death in custody uh, because I know what we recommended. I assisted in writing many of the recommendations. I did most of the field work in the Northern Territory to find out what was going on. I read the autopsy reports. Um, and, uh, you know, the problem is, is that m many of those, well, most of those recommendations have not been implemented. They've yeah. been ignored. Yeah, there are parts of the country where uh, there are some good programs. I think the Aboriginal Justice Agreement in Victoria is a very good example of people working hard collaboratively with governments and government departments and services uh, to achieve what the Royal Commission intended, and they have gone further. You have in Victoria the Koori Courts. Uh, I've observed them recently. Um, that, that's a brilliant um, form of therapeutic jurisprudence. Um, and they were mentioned, I mean, this kind of uh, jurisprudence was, was uh, examined in the Royal Commission and recommendations were made for more... Uh, you know, circle sentencing and such, yeah. uh, and Koori courts are probably the best example, I would say the best example in the country of that. But in the main, the police and correctional officers ignore their duty of care to prisoners and the systems uh, that employ them do not uh, develop them professionally and issue sufficient advice to them uh, to know that uh, they cannot leave sick or injured prisoners lying on floor the floor of their cells. They have a duty of care to transport them to a hospital without causing them further injury. Most police don't know that. And it's now so bad, one has to wonder whether or not the police forces of Australia uh, privately hold the view uh, that it's open season on Aboriginal people. I think it's a question worth asking. Yeah. It's not a question that we've ever been allowed to ask in the past, but I think since the um, Palm Island riots, the police associations of Australia have undermined uh, professional policing in Australia. Um, and the defence 
they 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 provide the uh, the funding for the defence for police. They've organised police protests at improvement of police performance, um, and they have lobbied hard uh, for. Uh, Police officers who have fallen short of professional standards. Hmm. I, I think this is the next uh, important front for Aboriginal ad- advocacy, and I hope that our young lawyers are paying attention and thinking of um, innovative ways to improve the system. Because you can be sure that the Aboriginal legal services of Australia have not. Uh, been sufficiently innovative and have been themselves become entrapped in a cycle of uh, arrest and imprisonment. Um, Why are young offenders, minors, being held in detention centres without thorough medical examinations, including um, tests for um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Why are they being held in youth detention centres without any prospect of further education, training and treatment for their conditions, uh, proper rehabilitation services? um, And why are some of them being held in institutions that are effectively um, adult prisons? Uh, So there's a steady stream uh, of of Indigenous youth uh, through the correctional services system and into the prisons with a disastrous result for Aboriginal families and future generations of children. Children are being removed from their families at an astonishing rate from the time that they are babies. And this is another area where young Indigenous people need to be qualified and to intervene in the system um, and come up with some innovative answers and reforms to the injustices that are being committed against our population. Yeah, I think um, the point we were having earlier about how, for example, the statistics around Indigenous women attaining higher education having really wonderful results, well, the stats also show us that a First Nations man at the age of 18 is statistically more likely to be imprisoned than he is to gain access to a university. And considering, you know, the lay of the land as it stands, people have to be asking, you know, first, um, white Australia needs to start paying attention to this. We've got 100% of the youth in detention in Northern Territory of First Nations. And here in New South Wales, it came out that there's a secret proactive police list where they were watching people and basically harassing them in order to, in quotation marks, deter them from doing the wrong thing. And 50% of the youth on that list were First Nations kids. The youngest one was something like nine. We're being over-surveilled, over-incarcerated, the deaths in custody and police presence keep coming. And it's this disgusting cycle. You know, that Family Matters report that came out recently that highlighted the difficulties with the out-of-home, in quotation marks, care system is really concerning. I mean, we're making all these fantastic gains in terms of when we get into these spaces, in terms of higher education, we're able to get out there and and use it to support and empower our communities, but we're more likely, well, our men are more likely to face prison time than to face crossing the stage with a degree. Like, what do we do about these things? Like, I love that recommendation of 
you know, our young people and, and not necessarily in age. There's there's older people who are new to the academy gearing up and, you know, qualifying to go out and speak power to truth um, to these systems would go a long way. But we do need good allies as well. We need people to get on board and start questioning these systems, hey? Yeah, um... I find that the best advocacy actually comes from Aboriginal leadership. Yeah. If you uh, flick the responsibilities for leadership over to non-Indigenous people, you won't get the outcome that you want. No. Uh, now, it's very important to have not allies, I wouldn't call them allies, okay. I would say highly qualified colleagues assisting who are non-Indigenous, often because we don't have such people in our own ranks. Uh, and if you're paying them, they're not allies. Yes, okay. Solid point. Yes. They have to function professionally and treat us like clients and do a good job. Yeah. I think this word allies is very misleading. Mm. A lot of white people love the word allies because it entitles them to have a say in our affairs when they don't know enough to have a say. Yeah. Uh, and usually it's the people who are not qualified. The people who are qualified to join ranks with us are people that uh, we might contract uh, to um, say, look, you know, do a statistical summary of the population or um, to advocate for us in courts of law, uh, uh, to represent matters in courts of law. Um, but if they're not paid, beware, because... Uh, they imagine that they know more than we do in many cases and that can make our lives very, very difficult. Um, so Aboriginal leadership is, uh, I think, uh, the kind of responsibility that has to be taken much more seriously. I, I've seen over the years uh, people who call themselves Aboriginal leaders and basically uh, they're terrible leaders and what they do is they surround themselves with the phalanx of white allies. And it's, it's a bit like, you know, trying to get through to Centrelink. You want to have a, a, a word to, to your Aboriginal leader? Well, you have to get through the phalanx of white advisors and you probably never will get through, just like with Centrelink. Um, so beware the Aboriginal leader label as well. The media call me an Aboriginal leader. Um, it's not what I call myself. And, uh, you know, I'm an academic and thank you for calling me an academic. That is my profession that's what I do um, uh, there are some excellent Aboriginal leaders and you'll find that they don't delegate their responsibilities to others they seek advice and they seek professional advice informed advice uh, but they rarely delegate their duties hmm. that's fantastic it's given me so much food for thought um as a budding academic myself and someone who wants to do good and not harm, there's a, there's a lot of gold in what you just said that I'll have to ruminate on, I think. Um, which, you know, actually leads me to my next point because I'm feeling very mentored by this conversation. <laughs> I'm feeling like I'm learning so much. So thank you so much for sharing this with me. Um, and my next question is, who has championed or supported and or mentored you? I had a wonderful mentor in Canberra when I was an undergraduate and um, 
I was, you know, intimidated by this enormous university system, although I hadn't attended university before, but I was at the Australian National University and the then principal of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, Peter Ucko, uh, found me in one late one night in one of the empty rooms in the Institute wearing several coats of beanie, you know, in minus zero weather, trying to write my essays. And he came in and, and turned on the heater. I didn't even know how to turn the heaters on. They were those old wall heaters, you know, yeah. with the, the wheels that you turned. So he turned the heater on um, and he had a look at the books that I was reading and asked me what subjects I was studying. And so then he started lending me his books and setting uh, exam questions uh, to give me confidence um, and actually marking them. So uh, wow. that's exactly what I needed. Um, and he, he made he made sure that I, you know, didn't feel like I had to sneak into the building to study. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he, you know, made sure I had a heated office in cold Canberra winters in which to study. So I just think practical help like that uh, is what a good mentor does. I've had many mentors. Um, I've had a few corporate mentors, a wonderful mentor in Rio Tinto, uh, Bruce Harvey, who gave me advice on various matters. Um, you know, learning how to read people who work differently, dress differently, um, and what the meanings of their appearance is in those settings mm. uh, is a language that has to be decoded for you. He was the person who pointed out to me that most corporate leaders in Australia are white, male, and over six feet tall. Oh. Um, yeah. And so when I started reading the literature, I saw what he was talking about. It's actually true. It was certainly true back then. And uh, so if you're white, male, and over six feet tall, get yourself a, uh, a Master's of Business Administration and you'll go straight to the top. Um, if you're female and short, forget it. Um, so, you know, as dumb as it sounds, those are the, the hidden rules in the corporate world. He decoded so much of the corporate world to me and I began to understand uh, how it all worked. So he was a colleague because of the research project uh, that was funded by the Australian Research Council on Indigenous agreements um, and part of the work involved looking at the Indigenous agreements with mining companies and res other resource industry companies. So, uh, you know, I didn't know one end of a mine site from another. Yeah. Um, and he actually was very keen on having good research done in the sector so that their good outcomes... He was proud of good outcomes. Uh, he was originally from New Zealand and, you know, worked as a... Uh, as a young undergraduate with Maori men uh, in rural industries, and he couldn't see the point of the racism in Australia. Mm. And so he wanted better outcomes, and he wanted good research to show what better outcomes would look like so that they would be supported, especially in his own company. So he was a great mentor because I learned so much from him. I also had another mentor, um, um, Yanina Gawler, she started out as the mayor of Echuca. Uh, she was a teacher at one time, I believe, a geographer. Uh, and, well, her, her qualifications were in geography. Uh, she worked on an, a um, vet sector review and, uh, 
had a series of jobs and she likewise ended up in Rio Tinto because of her expertise on employment and training. And she provided the leadership across several sites to catapult Indigenous employment rates from down around zero to around 25, 30% of the workforce on several sites. So she broke through uh, the sound barrier on Indigenous employment in the industry. Now, this is a long time ago, Mm. uh, and people take it for granted now. Um, But back then, you know, you'd find that there was a couple of gardeners and one rouseabout um, and and nobody driving trucks, nobody in administration, nobody in management. It's completely different now, of course. Um, So uh, my Aboriginal mentors have been many. Um, In my professional life, Uh, people like Professor Ian Anderson, Uh a medical doctor and medical sociologist. So he led the research um, arm of the Cooperative Research Centre, again funded by the Australian Research Council, uh, the CRC on Aboriginal health, and from him I learnt about the social determinants of health and the social and cultural determinants of health. a very long time ago, one of my mentors was Eric Wilmot. Now, one of his uh, family members denies that he's Aboriginal, and I think he just, you know, left it alone to keep the family peace. But there, in my mind, there's no doubt that he was Aboriginal, mm. and he knew that he was Aboriginal. He grew up in a time when, you know, the white side of the family denied such things. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, they most Australians thought of us as... Uh, one step up from apes, if that, um, the missing link and so on. Um, But he was definitely Aboriginal and he'd been a drover and uh, had, I'm not sure it was broken arms or broken legs, probably broken legs. And he ended up in a hospital in Newcastle um, recuperating and he started reading, um, but he was, became particularly uh, brilliant as a mathematician. And uh, he could talk about, uh, and he did actually tell wonderful yarns about Aboriginal gambling, you know, various Aboriginal games like Coon Can and so on, and and what they expressed mathematically and how symbols stood in for uh, number, and but more particularly algebra. Um, so... I learned a great deal from him. Um, He died quite young from cancer and it was a great tragedy that, you know, his Aboriginality was taken away from him by his relatives who refused to admit that he was. Um, A lot of people say that he wasn't, but um, I know certain things that he knows because I witnessed them that only an Aboriginal person could know. Um, and, you know, I think uh, the Aboriginal, there are many people in the Aboriginal community who diss people who've been taken away from us or are members of families who've been taken away from us yeah. uh, or whose family moved a long distance away. Um, and so then, you know, there's all this nastiness about whether or not people are Aboriginal. Yeah. Um, and so we expect white people or non-Indigenous Australians to know about the stolen generations and then our own people 
treat members of the stolen generations and our diaspora following the frontier wars with such vicious contempt, you know, you wonder whether or not they are themselves are actually Aboriginal. And I think the community needs to calm down about that and, um, and stop persecuting individuals about their background. Um, you know, of the perhaps, you know, 15,000 Indigenous people in Tasmania, only 3,000 of them uh, have the um, organisation, the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, recognise their Aboriginality with a common seal. And so the rest of them cannot prove that they are Aboriginal because they denied their Aboriginal Aboriginality by an Indigenous organisation and it's very difficult for, you know, rural Tasmanians to investigate the records. Yeah. I think that we need uh, to pay more attention to the recommendations of the Bringing Them Home report and the need for research on the um, family history of our people um, making family history much more accessible to our people because the suffering that the stolen generations has caused, aggravated by the viciousness of Aboriginal leaders who want to secure all the resources for themselves and their own families and exclude others who are in a vulnerable situation, um, has become, I think, a major health problem in our community. It's causing mental distress um, and I think it brings shame on us all, actually, this mm -hmm. behaviour. Really, I do. It might reflect a lack of reading on my part, but I've never, I've never heard reference to the frontier massacres, the frontier wars and the diaspora that results. I mean, that makes perfect sense hearing you say it, but I think that's the first time I've ever heard, heard that articulated. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, in terms of the complexity around identity. Like, as a light-skinned um, First Nations woman myself, whenever I go on television or do something public, sure enough, there's, you know, lots of comments like, she has blue eyes, and, I mean, they're green, but on their TV they look blue, and, oh, she's so white, and and we do. We, we expect white Australia or non-Indigenous Australia to get on top of understanding identity and these things and we do have this three-part identity system which can be problematic in and of itself but amongst ourselves these conversations can be really difficult and really intense as well so that's that's just given me a lot of food for thought the idea of the the diaspora i mean we get that for wars in other countries i just don't think i've ever heard that applied here the reason why i say it is because i think about it a lot I'm the descendant of people who are, who suffered massacres, many yeah. massacres. Yeah. I would go so far as to say that what happened to the Iman people, my grandfather's people, was genocide. Yeah. Except that genocide wasn't recognised back then. Yeah. But we need to find a term for these historical genocides um, many Iman people are scattered across the country. Uh, people went on the run, especially after the 19th century massacres. And then in the, as I said, in the early 20th century, uh, in the 1920s, there was the forced march of everybody from Tarum Reserve to Warabinda. And that was because of the death toll from the Spanish flu. So when soldiers came back 
from theatres of war overseas, especially in Europe. Uh, they brought with them the Spanish flu, which was a pig swine fever that wiped out millions of people um, across the globe um, in 1919 and onwards. It had a very heavy, heavy impact on the Aboriginal population. We lost tens of thousands of people. There are two mass graves at the old Aboriginal Tarum Reserve, which no longer exists. For many years, it was very difficult to visit them. And now there is a plaque to our ancestors there. Um, I took my daughter to the mass graves to show our respects uh, back in the 1990s. And, uh, you know, the, the Iman people lost so much yeah. because of, uh, I think, a sustained military uh, assault on Iman people over decades. So when I come down south amongst Aboriginal people who are deeply resentful of educated Aboriginal people and they regard me as some kind of freak who are, well, you know, I'm accused of not being grassroots. How could I possibly care about such suffering as people who die in custody? Because you've got a PhD, what would you know about anything? Um, and all of this, you know, kind of resentful um, viciousness. Um, and what they don't know is that I'm a survivor of genocide. Yeah. And it was much more recent in Queensland than down here. Mm. And, uh, you know, my own grandfather was in a forced march. So, and, uh, you know, I could, I could go on about this. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon Aboriginal people to be educated and to know our history and to get a lot smarter about how we overcome uh, what I call the gaps, the disadvantages. This is, these are an historical burden and what we need to be looking at is how do we deal with the historical burden of a, a sustained military campaign against us that went on for over 150 years. Um, and we need to be able to describe the, uh, the impact of that in a much more intelligent way than these, you know, young white radicals do down here in the south. You know, it's one thing to stand outside Flinders Street Station screaming um, slogans. It's another thing to come up with a considered evidence-based approach to a very serious problem that will take a long time to solve. Look, I have not, you know, as you know, I do attend protests and some protests are worth attending. I think Australia Day on the 26th of January is a slap in the face. It's an insult. Yeah. Uh, and we have to remove uh, the racist lies from the way that we remember history and the, the way that history um, is commemorated. Same goes for the war memorial. Why aren't our war dead treated with respect? Well, it's because they were lied about yeah. by the RSL, mind you, yeah. for over 70 years kept lying and lying and lying and you know eventually the facts outweighed the lies i had to stop lying when it became when the evidence was revealed that the uh man in charge of the horses in the light brigade was in fact an aboriginal man and that 
as far as we know so far, about 800 Aboriginal men served in World War One. Yeah. And, you know, actually Aboriginal people, men and women, have served in every military uh, campaign since the Boer War. So, you know, there's a job to do on history. Yeah. And this is where young Aboriginal academics have a role to play. Yeah, brilliant. And, um, you know, dissing other Aboriginal people is not the answer. Uh, the answer lies in the evidence and um, deploying the evidence in intelligent ways. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing this incredible yarn. Thank you, Amy. That's all we have time for on this week's episode of Blackademia. If you'd like to learn more about the work of Professor Marcy Langton, head over to the website www.blackademia.com and be sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever streaming service you're listening to this right now. Joining me next week for a yarn is Quantum Command Professor Chris Matthews. We're going to yarn up education, mathematics, and frankly, why anyone would choose to do a PhD in applied mathematics. Be sure to join in, and until then, yalloo!